How are you doing? Um, I mean, considering, um, doing pretty okay. Um, what worries me now is you know, me slowly transforming into a shapeless, formless blob. Um, yeah, I think that is <laughs> over time. I think that is not a concern that's restricted to me. That's true. Yeah. Um, I have tried to avoid going out as much as possible, and that includes you know going out to cycle and look at birds because, um, and this is something that. I don't know if it comes with age, but I think I'm slowly transforming to Larry David. Uh, okay, meaning? Meaning I... And, you know, this is to say that in the past I did not like people and now I like people even less. I Okay, yep. <laughs> yep. Um, and, I the, mean, COVID the... is a nice kind of cover for... <laughs> it for really that. is, for my psychopathy, uh, sociopathy to, to assert itself in fairly <laughs> benign ways. But no... I mean, put it this way, the parks have been crowded, to say the least. Okay. Um, so, and, and, you know, the problem is the the, the, the big park near my house requires mm-hmm. you to get there via a park connector, which invariably is going to be crowded because it's narrow. Right. Yeah. Um, and the park itself isn't exactly very interesting. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a couple of, like, ponds so- um, that don't really have anything in them. I'm I'm curious because I haven't really like I haven't left outside the radius of like uh, it's not even a radius so it's like from my house I have been to the doctor I have been to Seven Eleven and I have been to the supermarket which is like at most like a five minute walk away um, right so okay maybe ten minute walk away but I mean it's it's close it's very close so I've uh, it's not a radius I have not left like the straight line between my house and the supermarket. Um, I mean, so I, that, that's I, already a lot less varied than my routine. I mean, I go to the, the coffee shop downstairs to get food on special occasions, basically when I feel either very happy or very, very unhappy, I will go a bit further out to the mall <laughs> to where the McDonald's or the KFC or the whatever is. But unfortunately, those trips, because those areas tend to be more crowded, inevitably make me more unhappy. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, I was I was curious because I have a pretty good sense of how crowded the park connector near my house usually is. Um, but I haven't, you know, been there since the start of the circuit breaker. So, I, I'm curious, like, are people going to the park more or less than they normally would be? I think it's more. Because I... I mean, to be fair, I... I to be fair, I was away for almost a full year. Mm-hmm. So I've lost that, you know, almost a full year's worth of frame of reference. But, um, I mean, insofar as sort of the uh, average numbers, I think it's almost twice as Ooh. populated as it normally is, which, you know, is concerning, right? Everyone, and, and this is to, I mean, to be fair, this is to be expected, right? People feel anxious about being cooped up at home. They want to go out. And so... Naturally, you would expect to see a higher frequency of people moving around in park connectors, and that's that's fair. Um, and of course, what this creates, you know, when you have a park connector which is at most what less than two meters wide, yeah, right, it create these congestion points that make it extremely difficult to navigate. So, well, not more than I mean, more than definitely about five meters wide. Let's let's be five to six meters wide. Let's be charitable, but still, even then, right, 
And also the problem is my primary derivation of enjoyment from visiting parks is not so much the, the lack standing of there and feeling the... Well, it's not just a lack of people, but it's also watching the birds. Yeah, right, <clears throat> yeah. And that entails having to sometimes be stationary, which is, I think, in general frowned upon. So, yes. you know, you, you put all of that together into a single bag and you're like, okay, this is not an enjoyable experience. Yeah. Um, I, I, I am trying to shift my sleeping cycle such that I can go out at earlier times of the day or extremely late at night. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, I don't know. Waking up early has become very hard to attain lately. I don't know why. <laughs> but anyway. Anyway, okay. Speaking of nature, so mm-hmm. very awkward segue to nature. I wanted to, we, we mentioned, I think, uh, several episodes ago about bugs, right? I think we're talking yes, about computer we're bugs. We're talking about how debug, de- moths. And the term it, actually arose, yeah. right, from when a moth got trapped in the... Um, oh, the Mark II computer. computer. Yes, the Mark II, right. Yeah. Um, and how it fried a circuit board and created the first computer bug. Now, I think the reason why I got excited about that topic is because, well, the the word bug is actually a horribly misused term. Mm-hmm. Not in the computing sense, but in the entomological sense. I was doing the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I did them all yesterday, yesterday so I published <laughs> four episodes yesterday. Uh, so we're nice. up to date, actually. Um, oh, wonderful. Yeah, and I had... Because you, you, you mentioned that bugs are... Like, a true bug is a specific kind of... Um, like, there's a name for it, right? And I was like... Um, it's a specific I did designation not... in taxonomy. Yeah, so I didn't quite catch the name, and then I went like... I had to be like, uh, okay, what, what exactly? And then, you know, go on Google and try and approximate what I think you said and blah, blah, blah. So um, what I found was that um, true bugs are, um, they fall into, uh, okay, I have no idea how to pronounce this, but hemiptera or hemiptera, right. okay, whatever, hemiptera, whatever. Heteroptera and hemiptera. He- so, heteroptera uh, and hemiptera. hemiptera, okay. Right. Well, Heteroptera is a sub... Okay, this is, this is complicated because the, the, the problem is the taxonomy of bugs has changed over time. But okay. let's, let's, let's begin with the generalities. Uh, moths are not bugs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ladybugs are not bugs. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. uh, uh, Volkswagens are not bugs as well. I mean, that's a given. For that matter. But um, then are beetles but, bugs? But put it this I way. guess no, right? right? No. So this is okay. the thing, right? So, so the term bug is used by the layperson as a catch-all for anything with more than two legs that seems to have an, a, hard, a hard exoskeleton and crawls around and generally is a nuisance. Right, right? okay. Sort yeah. of in, in, in layman's parlance, anything that looks vaguely insect-like from a spider, <laughs> even mm-hmm. to a centipede, you know, is a bug. But mm-hmm. uh, in entomological terms, and I say this as someone who has studied insects, but I don't consider myself an entomologist, Right, mm-hmm. a bug is a very specific designation referring to a group of insects called the Hemiptera. Okay. Um, now the taxonomy has been a bit wonky over time, but it's more or less settled right now. There used to be two groups of bugs. There used to be the Homoptera and the Heteroptera. Uh-huh. Homo okay. and Hetero. Right. Yeah. Uh, don't ask me what those mean. I haven't had time or energy to dig into the the origins of of those two categories. Yeah, I mean, but homo- Hemiptera refers. Yeah. Homo is just the same, and then the same, uh, and Hetero, he- means, hetero means diverse. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I'm not sure if it's you know linked to some kind of wing morphology or uh, antenna morphology. Or, uh, it's complicated. But right. suffice to say, so the true bugs are very interesting because they many of them superficially resemble beetles. 
especially okay. things like shield bugs um, and uh, sweet potato bugs and stuff like that. They they kind of look like okay. they have hot hot wings, right? Um, but one of the most defining characteristics of all true bugs is that they have long piercing mouth parts. Huh. Um, so so if you if you actually pick up things like say a cicada, right, okay. or a shield bug, and you you know you you use uh, hopefully you know dead right, mm-hmm. uh, and you use a pair of forceps to tease out the mouth parts. It's actually a long tube that you use for piercing and sucking out liquids. So okay. basically, uh, true bugs largely subsist on a all liquid diet. They don't have jaws, they don't have chewing mouth parts, unlike, say, beetles or dragonflies. Okay. Very interesting, right? Okay, so now I should point out caveats. Other insects have also evolved piercing and sucking mouth parts, like mosquitoes. Oh, okay, yep. Yeah, but mosquitoes are flies, right? Most flies tend to have these spongy sucking mouth parts rather than tubes. Anyway, um, yeah, so... And the, 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 the cool thing is this... Um, these piercing mouth parts have been adapted for a variety of wonderful uses uh, within, within the, the true bugs. So you have things like cicadas, which uh, we'll talk about in much more detail later on. But cicadas mostly attach themselves to tree trunks or tree branches, and they mm-hmm. use their mouth parts to pierce into the vascular bundle. So they, you know the little uh, uh, tubes that supply water and nutrients to the, to, to the higher parts of the plant. So they use their mouth parts to pierce in and then they drink this fluid, this nutrient-rich fluid. Okay. I have been slightly distracted because I realized that my um, audio hijack file has not been recording the system audio. Ooh, um, okay. Which is not by itself a problem. No, I don't think we have to start again. But it is slightly annoying because... Now, the only way that I can, you know, have this thing running is to hear mm-hmm. myself in the lift channel. Oh, um, God. So, I'm like, um, what happened and <clears throat> why has my, you know, why, why has my very nice recording kind of stopped working? Mm. So, right. let me go ahead and record on Zoom as well. And then, I think I have to change this. Um, delete this block. And okay, so let me see. Testing, testing. Um, can you say something? Testing, testing. Okay, so I can hear you, but audio hijack mm-hmm. is not hearing you, which I oh. don't understand. It's something. It's something to do with. We'll get back to bugs in a second. Um, <laughs> well, we have an audio bug right here. Yeah. So it has something to do with um, how Apple has been kind of clamping down on apps access to certain uh, system functions. So in general, right. um, it's been it's become more and more difficult to record system audio. Actually, mm-hmm. so I think probably because I think Audio Hijack just updated, and there's probably some setting that I have to go back and change, or God knows what. Um, yeah. It's, mm. it's kind of annoying. Um, I wonder if I can do this. This is... Okay, I probably should not be experimenting like live. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, it's fine. It's fine. Um, how did this... 
there. Oh man. I can't remember what the layout was originally. Is is that is that it? Ah. Uh. Okay, whatever. Um it's fine. We'll we'll we can we can just keep going and I will somehow yeah. convert the thirty two um the thirty two kilohertz um zoom <laughs> recording right. to, to yeah, yeah. It's I I don't understand why yeah. it generated a thirty two okay, whatever. So just just a quick recap, right? Um yes. of, of what exactly is happening and why I'm suddenly like panicking. It's because I'm recording into Logic. You're recording into Audition. We are yes. communicating on Zoom. And yes. normally what you would do in this case is um, we are both recording our parts and we would also record the Zoom, right? But mm-hmm. Zoom itself, for some reason, the first time we did this, Zoom generated a, an audio file um, with a... With a not a bit rate. What 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 is it? Then bit depth. Um, not a bit depth. What what is the term that I'm looking for? Anyway, it generated a 32 kilohertz audio recording, which is extremely unusual. And I've never <laughs> seen that before. <laughs> um, most recordings are at 44.1 or 48. Right. Kilohertz. Yeah. Uh, and that makes it very hard to play nice and. You, you can work around it, but it's a pain. So, uh, I decided that... Okay, wait a second. Ah, okay. Um, so, for the second episode, actually at the start of episode two, there's this discussion about how to make Audio Hijack do this job instead. Yes. And Audio Hijack is an excellent app by Ro- Rogue Amoeba that allows you to capture mm-hmm. the audio that's that's coming in from different sources, so applications, input devices, and system audio, and then route it in different places. Um, It's kind of like a visual software version of what would normally be an audio chain, right? To, you know, go through like an EQ, a processor, um, uh, you know, having a a peak meter and things like that. Oh, Jesus Christ, yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) um, So that worked, right? But in general it's been very challenging or become more and more challenging to capture system audio. And Mm. that has to do with things that Apple has been doing to enhance the system security of Mac OS. Um, Mm. But it does make life very difficult because, for example, if you are on um, Wirecast or I think uh, OBS, which are both streaming software, you can't capture system audio, which makes the Mac effectively useless for streaming. (laughs) Or, I mean, you can, but you have to go through, you have to jump through so many hoops and you may or may not end up with, like, a delay in your, um, in your own headphones. So, something will happen on the screen and then, like, it will, you will hear it two seconds later and, Mm -hmm. you know, this may or may not be fatal, for whatever it is you're trying to stream, right? I mean, if you're streaming a live orchestral performance, it's, you're dead in the water, basically. Yeah, pretty much, right? <laughs> so, I mean, the, the problem really is the fact that you are looking at something and then you're hearing the audio feedback to, like, 
one to two seconds later, which, you know, yeah. if, for example, if you are trying to stream yourself working on logic, that's that's <laughs> dead for sure. Like Yeah, it's a deal breaker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you are playing a game, right, and you need to hear audio in real time, mm-hmm. then it's like, I, you cannot, it's, it's way too distracting. Right, yeah. and of course, if you are trying to, if you are recording yourself speaking, and then you speak into the mic, and then you hear yourself two seconds later, that's like, ugh. Wasn't that an ex- wasn't there an experiment done on this, or was there? I yeah. think there's an, there's a website that does this where it delays your your voice uh, feedback into your headphones by about like one point three seconds. Okay, and I it remember... basically makes you it renders you incapable of talking or something like that. I remember there was an episode of QI where they talked about this um, delay effect. Mm. Um, yes. Yeah, and so they, they actually tried it. Um, <laughs> so they gave all the panelists, you know, a pair of headphones and then it would just play back whatever they, was, they were saying with a delay. And yes. it, as you said, it rendered everybody incapable except Alan Davis. <laughs> he just was able to continue speaking normally. Like he was completely unaffected by the delay. Um, yeah. Yes, it's very QI. Yes, it is in a very strange way. Yeah. Anyway, um, whatever it is, I'm. Uh, I'll. I'll. I'll figure it out later. As long as we have like the recording, it's fine. Okay. We'll fix it in post. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Okay. So. Um, yeah, we can get back to true bugs. I'm sorry. So, huge digression. But also, I mean, to be fair, not everyone's going to find bugs to be as interesting a topic. But no, <laughs> okay. So, I was talking about the, the piercing mouth parts of bugs. And the reason why I find it really, really exciting is, well, it's because there are, you know, bugs use their, their mouth parts for a variety of things, right? <clears throat> uh, many of the bugs that we know of, especially agricultural pests, mm-hmm. um, tend to use their mouth parts for feeding on plant sap. So, okay. things like uh, shield bugs, stink bugs... Aphids, everyone's favorite aphids, um, cicadas or cicadas, depending on who you talk to. Um, now, these all mostly feed on plant matter, so they're vegetarian, right? But there is a really cool group of bugs called the assassin bugs. Uh, okay. I mean, and, and genuinely, their reputation matches their name. Okay. Right? As, as the name suggests, they are carnivores. Um, uh, okay. I think most assassin bugs that I am aware of feed on other insects. So what they do basically is they use their piercing mouthparts as a needle. Mm-hmm. They pierce the outer carapace of whichever poor hapless prey that they they chance upon. Mm-hmm. They secrete digestive enzymes inside, and then they suck up whatever fluid uh, is left. Oof. Okay. They are really really cool, and assassin bugs are. I mean, to be fair. Uh, in Southeast Asia, we don't really have as interesting a sort of uh, association with assassin bugs because, I mean, to be fair, we do have assassin bugs in Southeast Asia. We have a huge diversity of them. They are not very well known. We mm-hmm. actually have a researcher at the Lee Kong Chen Natural History Museum who is studying assassin bugs. Uh, but mm-hmm. in the New World, in the US, you know, in South America, in Central America, assassin mm-hmm. bugs are extre- extremely interesting because they spread a very particular disease. Um, called Chagas disease. Uh-huh, okay. If you've heard of Chagas disease, uh, I, I've, I've not really done a lot of reading into that, but it's apparently, you know, it's a pretty bad 
uh, disease, and it's it's fairly widespread in the neotropics, right? And it's spread okay. by a certain type of assassin bug. I think it's called a wheel bug or something. Um, we can look at we can we can post it in the show notes, but it's a really cool looking assassin bug because I think on the um, on the uh, the thorax, right, part of it is lifted into a, a series of spikes that looks like a wheel, Ooh. so like a, okay. like a bicycle bicycle gear of sorts. Wow. It looks okay. really really cool. And um, being bitten by one of these can cause you to fall sick. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so assassin bugs. And the other cool thing is there are some species of assassin bugs that um, have evolved a certain form of camouflage that uh, I, I don't know how effective it is, but it seems to work. Um, <laughs> what they do is that they uh, pile up the bodies of their prey on their backs to disguise themselves. Wow, <laughs> and there are photos. There are really cool photos of this online. Um, like that would seem like it is the most, uh, the biggest possible deterrent. But uh, hey, I mean, I know, it works. right? I know, right? It's it's super cool. So so assassin bugs are extremely interesting, right? They're usually very sort of slim, um, extremely long mouth parts, and yeah, they 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 just you know extremely good at at at, at uh, killing prey. So yeah, so so that that's you know. Some of the users of the of the the true bug mouth parts, but the reason why you know, and uh, I'm going into to bugs this week is because in the coming month or so, uh, as we transition from spring into summer in the northern hemisphere, mm-hmm. in the U.S., what's going to happen is that we're going to see a mass emergence of cicadas uh, around the West Virginia area. <laughs> that okay? The area of effect is going to be. Hang on, let me look up the. Uh, the, where this is going to be. Is there a reason it's that be... it's confined to a geographical area? Ah, I'm going to get into this. So the, okay. this year's emergence is going to be somewhere around Southwest Virginia, parts of North Carolina and West Virginia. Now, the reason is this. Um, unlike in Singapore or in most parts of Southeast Asia where, to my knowledge, to my best knowledge, cicadas are annual uh, breeders. Right, okay. so they lay the eggs, and then the the eggs hatch. They grow into adults, and then they breed within the same year. Mm-hmm. Right now, this is the normal life cycle of a of a cicada, and this life cycle is usually about three to five years long. So uh, that's that's more or less about the average lifespan of a cicada in Southeast Asia, as far as I know. I might be wrong, but I'll, okay. I'll, I'll dig into this in more detail at some point. But in the U.S., there is this genus of cicadas called the Magi cicadas, M-A-G-I cicadas, right? Okay. Now, they have extremely long and extremely weird life cycles. There are two types of cicada. There are the 13-year cicadas and the 17-year cicadas. Okay. So what happens is the adults emerge. They, and they emerge en masse, like at the same mm-hmm. time. They go into this mass orgy that lasts about four to six weeks. Okay. They lay the eggs and they die. All mm. the adults die. Right? These eggs hatch and the, what the larvae do, what the, the nymphs in this case they do is they, they burrow into the ground mm-hmm. where they lie dormant or they, well, they just feed basically under the ground for either 13 or 17 years. Wow. Okay. And then once that 13 or 17 years is up, they all really the ground and then have this crazy sex party and then the life cycle begins again. That sounds very tiresome if you <laughs> I mean if you're just being assaulted 
by a huge wave of cicadas every 13 right. or 17 years. Right. So, so this is the thing. Um, this, these cicadas are divided into broods, and these broods are geographically separated from each other. So which is okay. why this year, um, it's brood nine that's going to be emerging. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't, don't ask me the naming convention, but brood nine uh, is, is localized to this particular area of West Virginia and parts of North Carolina. North Carolina, And uh-huh. so the last time they emerged would have been 2003 or 20, uh, to 20, uh, 2004. Okay. Right, and they are a seventeen-year uh, uh, cycle. So this is when they're all going to emerge. <clears throat> Sorry, and it's going to be extremely noisy uh, over the next couple months. Uh-huh. Um, it's also going to be uh, a little bit of a nuisance. You could get pelted in the face by randy cicadas as well, and then all of a sudden they just disappear or drop dead. Or I drop mean, dead, yeah, yeah, more or less. Uh, which I, you know, I, I. I haven't seen this phenomenon happen before, right? You know, most of my work I do in Southeast Asia and, you know, their cicadas are dime a dozen. You go into any yep. wooded area in Southeast Asia, cicadas. Yeah. Extremely noisy. And, you know, I mean, don't underestimate how much noise a cicada can make. I had the wonderful privilege of standing right beside a cic- So it was literally beside my ear. And the noise it made, just one insect was deafening. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So, you know, fast, fascinating creatures, deeply fascinating. But, you know, in the US, there is this rather unusual phenomenon um, mm-hmm. that happens. And so I was reading a paper about this. This is a, not a recent paper. This paper came out around 2013. Okay. Um, basically, there are, I think, well, um, about three different genera of these cicadas that mm-hmm. go through these annual 13 and 17 year cycles. And you would think that, you know, say species A follows a 13-year cycle, species Uh B follows a 17-year cycle, and so on and so forth. That's not actually the case. In fact, within each of these species, some broods are 13 years, uh, 13-year cycle uh, populations, and some broods are um, 17-year cycle populations. How does that happen, though? That's a good question. I don't know. And this paper doesn't really have any answers on on that front as well but Uh basically this seems to be a a relatively recent phenomenon and i mean there are many hypotheses many theories as to why this might be the case um one hypothesis that this paper kind of rejects is that this is due to uh uh sea level cycles during the pleistocene so the pleistocene happened around the last i think million years ago it's extremely recent geological epoch Mm-hmm. And in many parts of the world during the Pleistocene, this was characterized by a series of ice ages. Right, right? okay. Uh, every like 100,000 years, you see an ice age. So the sea level will rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall. And because of that, you know, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Northern Hemisphere, this will be characterized by the expansion of glaciers mm-hmm. and, you know, expansion and contraction of glaciers. Whereas in, in, say, the tropics, especially in Southeast Asia, this would have been characterized by sea level rises and falls. Yep. Right, so... So, um, oh, okay, sorry. And uh, what, what was I talking about? So, yes. So, one hypothesis is that, you know, the, the, the expansion and retraction of glaciers created these pockets of populations that later expanded to meet each other again. And this, um, this, this you know, phenomenon is what allowed for this pattern of 13-year and 17-year cycles to evolve. But okay. that's also not very clear. It doesn't really explain the 13 or 17 years. 
Um, another yeah. hypothesis is that um, these cycles basically arose as a form of predator avoidance. Okay. Uh, pointing out that 13 years and 17 years, these are both prime numbers. Yes. And so I, I don't know the exact math of this, but basically, you know, we, we see in many organic wild populations that, you know, they go through cycles. So there are cycles of sudden population spikes and then population declines, the population spikes and declines. And some people suggest that this, you know, 13-year and 17-year cycles are times such that it avoids spikes of predator numbers. Interesting. So, I mean, I mean, like, okay, for anyone who's, you know, vaguely interested in math, like, of course, that's what jumps out at first, right? 13 and 17, like, they seem to be very unusual numbers. Although, I, I realized, I, I mean, I was thinking about it and I, I was like, okay, I, I guess that's a human bias, right? Um, because it, it doesn't seem like there should be a reason for nature to, um, to kind of end up settling on 13 and 17. Um, right. Because it's like, it's, it's like, is there a, is there a, um, some kind of reason that when when you say predator avoidance, what I'm understanding from it is that other other animals operate on a non prime number cycle. I mean, that is my supposition, but I, I don't I yeah. don't really know. I mean, okay. to be I should have dug into this a bit more, but I'm I'm not an expert on bugs. You know, I have right. I don't study cicadas, but I mean, this is in itself very unusual, right? How did not and not only did this, you know, this seventeen and thirteen year thing emerge once, it emerged three times, right, independently of each other, uh, according to this paper. So wow, okay, there is clearly some kind of biological meaning Impetus behind for this, it, yeah, right. And and they suspect that you know, the authors of the paper suspect that, and although they didn't really go into it, they suspect that you know the genetic mechanism that produces these life cycle um, time frames is identical. Huh. But what exactly drives this, I think, still remains uh, one of the great mysteries of science. That is, I mean, it's it's mind boggling. Like there, are, I mean, I have so many questions. <laughs> I have so many questions as well, but I, yeah. so I don't think I can answer every single one of them, but it's, it's, yeah. Interesting. I mean, it is, it's kind of, um, strange to me because I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, if you think about the idea of timekeeping, um, mm -hmm. there right. are only, there are, there are some things that, um, are human conventions. And obviously there are some things that are rooted in the, you know, astronomy of the way Earth moves around the sun or the way Earth rotates around its own axis and things like that, right? But so, there are also biological controls. I mean, I have right. colleagues who study the circadian rhythms in animals. And, right. you know, humans are also controlled by the same biological processes that right, govern, correct. you know, circadian cycles. Correct. So, I mean, the circadian rhythm is, I mean, literally cir circadia, right? It's like about one yeah. day. It's a, it's a cycle that, right. that repeats based on um based on the rotation of the earth around its own axis um mm -hmm. so i mean this is something that i've i've been uh, interested in because um i mean you mentioned resetting your sleep cycle <laughs> earlier <laughs> uh yeah i mean i have a really messed up kind of sleep cycle and it's not clear what the problem is um i and mean this I went is for despite us living in the tropics where yeah. you know the it's extremely time of regular. day Yes, it's stable, yeah. not like in 
the temperate zones where oh 4 p.m. Yeah. it's gone dark. <laughs> yeah, I mean like the variation between um between the the equinoxes, right? Or mm-hmm. not the equinox, um the the opposite of the equinox. Yes, the solstices. The solstice, yeah. The variation mm-hmm. is like I, I believe it's twenty minutes in either direction. So yes. during the summer solstice, which is normally the longest day, right? The summer solstice is twenty is forty minutes. The day is forty minutes mm-hmm. longer than the winter solstice in Singapore, right? Mm-hmm. So it's yep. extremely it's yep. extremely irregular. So I mean it's yes. you know, I've I've done the whole hog at this point, like consulted a sleep specialist, um, done a sleep study, overnight sleep study. Um, haven't heard back because my particular um, sleep specialist is a um, respiratory specialist. <laughs> oh, dear God. And so she has no oh, open appointments. Press ganged into, yep. <laughs> yeah, she has no open appointments until September. So I have no yep. idea what the sleep study says. But yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of reading about like circadian rhythms and so on. I mean, the circadian rhythm, um, it makes sense, right? Um Although it is, I mean, it, it makes sense because there is a regulator, mm-hmm. right? Which is right. the rising and setting of the sun. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, there is this experiment in um, sleep science where um, some guy basically lived in the cave for, I can't remember what time, you know, how, what time period it was. And he, I mean, he kept in touch with his team and everything, but he, the idea was that he wanted to remove all external um, regulators of time and Mm, basically to see if his sleep cycle would would overrun. And um, the, I think the result was that the circadian rhythm, his at least, is very close to 24 hours, but not exactly 24. Oh, I see. Um, Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's slightly longer than 24 but it's actually mm-hmm. surprisingly well regulated. And so I think the conclusion that it came to was that there is a natural circadian rhythm that is close mm-hmm. to 24 hours, but it is actually re-regulated every day by sunlight. Yes. Right. Right. So there is a biological component and there is a abiotic component, shall we say. Right. Yeah. So the thing mm-hmm. is, um, it would make sense, for example, for, for something like... Um, it makes sense that there is a circadian rhythm. It makes sense that there is some kind of annual rhythm because of seasonal changes. Mm-hmm. But 13-year rhythms is like how... <laughs> but but this isn't really a circadian cycle in the sense that it's this not. isn't how an individual spends its day. Because these, these, yeah. these larvae, they spend the 13 years, well, 13 years or 70 years underground. So there is no exposure to light whatsoever. Right. It's a part of the of the developmental cycle. So this is this is, I mean, the circadian rhythm is is a is a nice parallel, but it's not quite the same phenomenon because right. in this case not. we're looking at developmental processes instead. Correct. Right. What controls the rate at which an insect uh, moves from one phase to another? And in insects, yep. the phases are fairly discrete. Right. We call these mm-hmm. instars for uh, you know say for butterflies. Right. They mm-hmm. go through, they hatch. Right. They are the first instar caterpillar, and then they go through a molt. Right, the right. second instar, and then another molt into the third instar, and somewhere around the I don't know how many instar, right? They will pupate, and then from pupation, they will go into an adult adult form. Now, right, uh, true bugs don't go through this three stage cycle. They start as a nymph, and the mm-hmm. nymph just gets bigger and bigger and bigger through various instar stages, right? So they'll molt like all insects do, but they right. don't go into a pu- uh, a pupation stage per se. Right. So it's it's in a sense, I mean, more akin to like. 
I don't know, humans and puberty. Like, it's uh, gradual. Yeah, but, you know, they, they one... do shed the skin. So those, the, right. the, the skin shed events are basically what we call uh, transition from one instar to the next. Okay. Right? It's, it's right. very right. discreet. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, 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 I know this as well because I used to keep a praying mantis as a pet in the university. <laughs> and so, you know, basically I caught this praying mantis as a nymph. I think it was a, probably a second or third instar nymph. Mm-hmm. And I watched it uh, shed... Uh, through multiple cycles until it became a full adult and then got eaten right. by a female in a breeding experiment gone horribly wrong. <laughs> um, funnily enough, it went through its final molt, so the molt from a, its final nymph instar into its uh, full adult phase mm-hmm. uh, on Christmas night okay. in 2013 or 2014, I believe. Okay. I was in the lab. I don't know why I was working on Christmas night in the lab, but basically it, uh, and what they do is, uh, praying mantises, when they molt, they use gravity to help them. Okay. So they will hang upside down. Uh-huh. And then uh, they will use gravity to basically pull themselves out of their old uh, exoskeleton. Okay. Yeah. And so you will see them slowly just emerge uh, and just slowly move towards the ground. Uh, right. The downside of this, and this is something that happened to a female I was trying to rear, uh, mm-hmm. is that if they don't grab on properly to okay. the... Uh, uh, opposite surface. If they fall, they'll die. That because they get brutal. trapped in their old skin. Oh. They get trapped in their old exoskeleton, and they cannot emerge. So they basically suffocate within their old exoskeleton. That is um, not pleasant. Mm, yeah, it does not sound like yeah. a good experience at all. Yeah, so that's how the female mantis I was trying to rear died, but the male survived and you know grew to a full size, gorgeous adult. Uh, that, yeah, it didn't last very long, but still. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, uh, I'm, I'm still kind of stuck on the 13 and 17 year cycle thing because... Right, no, that, that is super seriously cool, right? Yeah, because, I mean, as you said, it has to be developmental, right? It has to be something that mm-hmm. is kind of, it's, it's not necessarily mediated or it's mediated uh, only to a small degree by external factors. Like, it's something... I don't know what the term would be, right, um, in, in, in biology, but it's something that is, I, I'm very afraid of saying this word, but it seems, it sounds like it's something encoded somewhere. Right. So, I mean, you know, what genes, is probably going to be, you know, a complex series of genes, but, you know, why 13, 17 and not, say, you know, any other prime number as well? I mean, is there a... Is, is there like a general principle of like prime numbers in biology? I mean, it doesn't feel not like as there far as be. I'm aware. Yeah, <laughs> it's. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. This is this is the limit of my knowledge right now. Right, right, right. I know that this is a phenomenon that's extremely cool. It's also a major nuisance of people who don't like you know insects yep. in the US. Um, yep. To to whom I say, well, suck it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. mostly an East Coast phenomenon. East Coast to I think Midwest phenomenon. Interesting. As well. So I okay. will not see this in the Southwest. Um, right. Anyway, the Southwest is probably too arid for most of these cicadas. Anyway, the Southwest actually right now is, uh, uh, I think it's more or less come to an end. But over the last month, the um, state of New Mexico has been plagued not just by COVID nineteen but also by moths. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Going back to the um, original non-bug. I guess, right? Um, 
uh, yeah, just friends who have you know been posting on social media. They've just been you know saying that there are thousands of moths outside the house, and you know they have been falling asleep to the soft sounds of moths thudding against the window. Oh it's, my god! It's been quite... But you know, and and I I don't know whether this is a regular spring thing for all. I I think it might be, but we also have regular moth emergencies in Singapore. Mm-hmm. I think, um, gosh, when was this? Um, I think most people will remember the uh, swallowtail moth emergence that happened, I think, about three, four years ago, maybe? No, Sounds two, three familiar. years ago, right? Where all over Southeast Asia, not just Singapore, but also in Hong Kong, in Malaysia, in Borneo, um, these huge, monstrous moths just started showing up out of nowhere. Like, I enormous. Think I think about this sounds 10 familiar. cm wide yeah, moths. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This, this and they're quite striking familiar. because you know they're they're grey black with white stripes on the hind wings, mm-hmm. really gorgeous looking moths. And um, so these are what we call the tropical swallowtail moths. Uh, Scientific name is Lisa Zampa. L Y S S A Z A M P A. Extremely beautiful, and you do see them, you know, um, here and there once in a while. I've seen them. Gosh, we have. I've seen one in borneo i've seen one in uh, the highlands of thailand near the myanmar mm-hmm. border i've seen one in sumatra um but you know every so often you know you see them emerge in unbelievable numbers i think there was right. a there was a photo of it was even malaysia malaysia football field just entirely covered in these moths during a match of course, because you know these light, the lights will be switched on and the moths will be attracted to the lights, right? Yeah, and they just yep. die in the field in huge numbers. Um, and the 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 key driver of these emergencies remains poorly known. Great. It is thought that uh, these moths, the, the 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 emergence numbers is linked to dry spells, so El Nino, okay. La Nina cycles, because. Right. They probably subsist on a very particular, like like many butterflies and moths, they subsist on very specific host plants. Okay. So the caterpillars require certain kinds of plants to survive, and during certain kinds of environmental conditions, all of these plants suddenly start, you know, growing rapidly, and right, that allows right. for sudden explosion of the moth population, which then leads to this explosion of the adult moths uh, flying around. But that still. I think to some extent speculative. We don't really have a clear uh, understanding of the, the, the drivers of, of these insect outbursts. But again, you know, going back to the whole question of, of, of insect population cycles, extremely interesting and right. very, very poorly studied. We really yeah. don't have any clear idea uh, as to what drives these things. That is... I mean, I'm very baffled by the prime numbers. I, that's the thing that is just... <laughs> It, it, right. Okay, no, it's At like least, cannot, you know, cycles of rain we can, under, we yeah. can understand. Cycles of you know dry spells we can understand. But yeah. prime numbers, what 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 gives? You know, I don't understand. I mean, okay, we we also had another recent insect emergence in Singapore: termites. Over the last week or so. Okay. At least people living in the east would have seen thousands of termites flying around for a couple nights. Okay. I mean, I I haven't, and I haven't. You haven't. I have. Yeah. Uh, well, it's probably quite localized, more localized okay. than we think. But yeah, it, basically, if you live in Singapore or Malaysia or you know Indonesia, and all of a sudden on a, on a night or two, you suddenly see all these flying things flying around, especially near the lights. Uh, it's something that okay. no Singaporean is stranger to, right? Yeah. People think they're ants. People think they're cockroaches. No, they're not. They're termites. Right, right. These are winged termites that emerge 
en masse mm-hmm. on specific nights. I think it's driven by rain and humidity. I'm not okay. entirely sure what the drivers are. But they emerge, okay. have a mass orgy, and then they shed their wings and find a place to lay, lay their eggs and die. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, actually, as far as termites go, I, I don't think I've actually seen a termite for really years. Well, you don't think you have, but you probably have. That is true. Okay, <laughs> that's true. Um, I mean, I, right. I know Anything that... that flies, you know, around at night, we consider an ant. Interesting. A cockroach. Right. Anything that looks vaguely ant-like, we think, uh-huh. oh, it's a flying ant, right? But, you know, and, and having in some sense studied part of this, not, not studied as in, in the professional sense, but having done, you know, classes on this and being aware generally as a naturalist of, of, of the insects around me, you start to realize, oh, it's actually very, very interesting. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, this, I mean, this is really one, one area that is completely invisible uh, as far right. as I'm concerned because it's not really not on my radar and it's not something that I actively want to put on my radar generally. <laughs> well, so, I mean, put it this way. We are all affected by this to some yeah. extent, right? Whether you're living in the US East Coast or whether you're living in Singapore, whether mm-hmm. you're living in Hong Kong or, you know, or Borneo or Malaysia, um, insect emergences are part and parcel of how we live. But it's remarkable how so many of us are able to blank this out, yep. even when it's happening. Yeah, it's like really, <laughs> right. if, it's, if it's not like in your face... Just... Even when it's in your face, like, you know, really? if say an insect is flying in your face, do you take time to, you know, catch the insect, look at it and go, oh, it's actually a termite, not an ant. Oh, yeah. No, no it's I like, don't... oh, throw it away, right? You know, get rid of it, vacuum it up, whatever. I mean, Close the there, there was a... Aircon. Okay, I was going to say there was a bug, but it may not have been a bug. It probably was not a bug. Um, <laughs> there was an insect of some description that um, appeared mm-hmm. in my room um, a couple of days ago. And um, basically, my dad got out the fly swatter and he swatted it, and that, that yeah. was the end of it. And I have no idea why it was. Yes, um, yes exactly. So this is this is. I mean, this is the, the interesting thing. You know, we and uh, we are going to drift completely off as as we are used to now. Yeah. Um, but basically, a lot of us, you know, we have a certain blindness to the natural world. And to be mm-hmm. fair, you know, before I got interested in insects, this was me to the yeah. T as well. Uh, I only started getting interested in insects fairly late, uh, somewhere around like senior year in undergrad, mm-hmm. when I did a class on entomology. And right. then, you know, you're forced to look at insects and go, oh, actually, you know, it's not this, right. it's not this, it's that. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, uh, yeah, so, so there was actually a study conducted by a, a couple friends of mine from the uh, Los Angeles Natural History Museum. Okay. Um, where they basically got people to... Uh, sweep up every insect they could find in their house mm-hmm. and either, I think, post pictures of them or post the insects to the museum wow. in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, and and using that, they basically discovered a whole bunch of new species <laughs> just from people's home sweepings. Um, That's hilarious somehow. <laughs> right. You know, there, there is a remarkable amount of diversity of insects within domestic contexts. Right. Um, and, and many of these insects and, you know, beyond insects, arthropods, including these like spiders, they perform fairly important functions in the house. So, you know, and, and this is something that happened to me personally. There, there was a spider living in my toilet. But unfortunately, the spider has vanished. 
Okay. Um, and uh, when that spider was there, you could actually see the number of toilet flies, which are basically, uh, they're flies from the genus Psychodidae. Okay. Um, psycho is literally like crazy, but um, <laughs> okay. they, uh, yeah, Psychodids, yeah. Um, these toilet flies, everyone knows what they are, right? They're found in almost every single toilet. Uh, very furry bodies, extremely furry wings. They breed ah, in drains, okay. and then the adults emerge out, you know, these gray little things with two huge-ass wings. Um, right. And when the spider was there, the number of psychodids dropped significantly. Okay. Right? And then when, Makes of sense. course, the spider vanished, the number of psychodids suddenly exploded again. Which, you know, again shows you the sort of the ecosystem of the, of, of the, of the home. Yeah. Right? How spiders... And this is the thing, I had no idea what kind of spider that was. It's not like the usual spiders you see in toilets. So the usual toilet spider mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in, in domestic okay. context is either a falset, so we call this a cellar spider. They okay. have extremely triangular shaped abdomens and very long legs. Right, okay. Or jumping spiders, which everyone... Yeah. Or uh, jumping spiders, which everyone knows. Jumping spiders, yeah. cute, with extremely large front-facing, a, a pair of front-facing eyes, very, very hairy, and usually very small, and they jump Cute might well. be relative, but yes. Oh, no, no, they are cute, right? You know, oh, God, okay. Very furry, uh, and these two puppy dog eyes that face the front. Uh, mm. Those are jumping... Jumping spiders are the coolest spiders on Earth. Uh, because they, you, you know, they, they... I mean, among the spiders, thing, jumping spiders have the largest front-facing eyes... Okay. Which they use as stereoscopic vision for estimating distance when they jump. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, that is interesting. Right? Right? So, yeah. so jumping spiders are, I think, the best because they are harmless, to, to us at least, and they are some of the most effective predators of small arthropods, uh, in, at least in the home context. So I, I never kill spiders know. because I, I love to have them around. Uh, when they get a bit big, they become big, especially huntsmen. Uh, huntsmen are the the big, long legged ones, mm-hmm. <laughs> the ones you see in Australia, the ones you see in the forests of Southeast yeah. Asia. Mm, yeah, those are the ones that maybe. I mean, they are harmless uh, to a large extent, but they could God, they scare the shit out of people. Yeah, I I mean yes, <laughs> I I don't really want to think about it right now. Uh, okay, in a, but yeah, in an off topic um, that is, this is quite a different direction although it might actually kind of go back to um our discussion about wildlife markets um i had a colleague who went to cambodia and um returned with um the fried spider was it fried i don't know mm. basically returned with right. like uh an edible spider i mean i mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense they're they're edible well. it she returned with um uh prepared spider of some they're edible to the extent yeah. people eat them yes pretty much <laughs> and so we were basically all press ganged into eating a little bit um, okay I mean that's the line that I draw the line at that I, I love animals I love eating animals but I for some reason I cannot bring myself psychologically to partake in entomophagy which is eating uh, entomophagy <laughs> that's the term for it yeah. yeah, I mean that that is what there is a be, there is right? a movement. Uh, uh-huh. There is a movement to get more people to eat insects because it's seen as more sustainable. Uh huh. And I I can see where they're coming from, but good God, the psychological barrier of uh, right. Yeah. Uh, I I I recall spending a uh, summer in Thailand actually uh-huh. doing some field work for an anthropological uh, study, um, and I was offered 
an omelette uh, that I knew had insects in them, and so I refused to touch it. But basically, what what what's inside is not the insect per se, but it, um, okay. If you live in Singapore, if you live in Southeast Asia, you'll know what the big red ants are. Ah, uh, yes, yes. The ones that bite, the ones yes. that are extremely painful, the ones that tend to get caught in your socks and bite through your socks. Um, these are what we call weaver ants. Okay. And everyone who does field work in Southeast Asia, in fact, all the way to uh, the Himalayas, mm-hmm. hates them. Yeah. Absolutely hates them. But you don't um, have to do field work are... to hate them. Well, fair enough. But you know, if, <laughs> if you do field work, right? I once had to walk through a bush full of these things because there were like multiple nests inside this patch. And it's, I spent like, you know, five minutes just brushing them off my pants. It was not a pleasant experience. Um, in fact, and I'm going to digress again. A study mm-hmm. came out sometime last year, I think, from Trevor Price's lab. Trevor Price is an evolutionary biologist and ecologist uh, based out of the University of Chicago, showing mm-hmm. that um, it was these ants, these, these uh, in, in common uh, terms, we call these weaver ants. Weaver ants because they use their larvae, to, which produce silk, to okay. uh, weave leaves together to form a nest. So you'll right. see their nest at these. If if you look in, if you if you find the nest, it'll appear as a giant ball of leaves high up in a tree. Uh, mm. Sometimes they are wrapped into a nasi lemak packet shape, almost <laughs> pyramidal shape. Um, okay. And you know the outside will be just covered in these ants guarding the guarding the nest, and and oh. the, the the silk that binds the nest together is actually formed by the by the larvae, so well the larvae and the pupae, um, and you'll see them actually carrying the larvae around in their jaws uh, as they when they're moving their nests as well. It's really fascinating, but also, good God, it inspires fear. And so what Trevor Price's group found was that in the Eastern Himalayas, right, the reason why the diversity of birds is lower in the lowlands relative to the highlands is because of these ants. These ants okay. compete with birds for... I guess, resources. And so because these ants don't make it into the the higher elevations, mm-hmm. they don't compete with birds at high elevations. And so the birds can diversify to a much greater uh, diversity uh, in, in, right. in, in the higher elevation zones. It's really fascinating. I had no idea this was the case until I was... And you go like, oh yeah, it, it kind of makes sense. Why would birds compete with ants? Uh, similar diets because these ants are in some sense uh, I think they're carnivorous and they feed on other insects in the same way that right. birds feed on those insects as well and I think right. they basically what they did was they did a diet comparison they compared the diets of these ants with the diets of the uh, insectivorous birds in the uh, Himalayan eastern Himalayan lowlands and uh-huh. they found that there was a very very high level of matching going on which suggests wow. that you know the ants and the birds okay. are basically competing for food right so, so to kind of yes jump going back-, back to these ants Okay. What was I talking about? Um, uh, hang on. Why did we talk about these ants? And how they, how they. Um, oh yeah, the the food, the food that had the ants in them. Wait, food that was had it ants. the omelet? Oh, the omelet. Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 Omelet. Good God! How how we drifted. Basically, <laughs> um, this omelet was full of the eggs of these red ants. Nope. And how the eggs are collected is even t- more terrifying. <laughs> I saw uh, 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 my professor's wife do this. They take this long-ass bamboo pole, mm-hmm. and they tie a basket to the end of the, the you know the end of the bamboo pole. Right. And they hold the other end, and they just shove the uh, basket end of the bamboo pole into the nest. Thereby, 
angering all the ants, which crawl down the bamboo pole towards you, mm-hmm. and also dislodging all the eggs into the basket. <laughs> and so then you leave the basket in the sun for about half an hour so the ants will clear off, and then you take that and you uh, stir-fry it into your eggs. And apparently it tastes like peanuts, but I wouldn't know because I have I thus far refused have... to consume insects. I have, I have no intention of trying. So, on the note of entomophagy, if it is a spider, which is clearly not an insect, is it arachnophagy? Maybe, or, I mean... Or do they just lump it... Do we just lump, like, again, do we just lump everything that we think of as a bug into entomophagy? I, I think that presently is the case, yeah. Because people eat scorpions <laughs> as well, and scorpions are definitely not uh, insects either. They are chelicerates, right. together with spiders. Right, and, right. And uh, horseshoe crabs. Right. <laughs> okay. That uh, I was not expecting that, but yes. Okay. That's yeah. I mean, to be fair, we do eat you know relatives of insects in the form yes. of crabs, lobsters, yep. uh, crayfish. Which another oh god, when when it comes to names, the arthropods have such unusual uses of names. Right. What we call crayfish in Singapore is not a crayfish in the US. Okay. Right. What in the is... US, I think it's more often called crawfish. So yep. a crawfish is a kind, um, good God, I don't, I don't even know what a crawfish is. But, you know, crawfish look extremely different from the crayfish we see. Crawfish okay. are small. Mm-hmm. They're usually quite round. Whereas the mm-hmm. crayfish we have in the seafood restaurants here are flat. So the crayfish right. here are more properly called slipper lobsters. For very obvious reasons, that they look like right. a moccasin. Like a slipper. Right. Um, right. Um, okay. Whereas the crawfish in the US is a completely different thing altogether. So, again, you know, common names and technicalities, but it, it does make for very unusual uh, culture shocks when you go, oh, you know, uh, when, when you offer an American crayfish in Southeast Asia, they expect crawfish to show up and right. they see this weird lobster thing instead. Right. I mean, Or yams, for that matter, when they're moving away from oh insects altogether. Right? right, yes. A yam yes. means has three different meanings in three different parts of the world, mm-hmm. right? In Southeast Asia and many parts of East Asia, a yam is a taro. Yeah. Right? Yep. In Africa, a yam is something else, which I cannot remember. Uh-huh. And then in America, a yam is a sweet potato. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you can kind of so see that's why... not confusing at all. You can kind of see why that would be, you know... Um, why that would be the case, but yeah. I, and I think what makes it even more confusing is that in Asia, or uh, East Asia and Southeast Asia, like yam and sweet potato are two different things. Yes, right, right. Like <laughs> a sweet potato is just a sweet potato. Right, right. Whereas um, a yam is a it's a purple thing. Yeah, I had I had a thought and then it disappeared. So, I. Okay, I will just instead fill this time by pointing out... So I did eat a leg of the spider um, that my colleague brought back from Cambodia. And um, there were a couple of people who volunteered or were volunteered to eat (laughs) the body. Um, And the leg is... I mean, as as, as much as eating a spider can be inoffensive, the spider leg was frankly quite inoffensive it's most of it is the psychological hurdle 
But right. I, I think so too. I mean, yeah, I, if I could get over the psychological hurdle, I'm sure insects taste delicious, right? Yeah. I, I'm sure, you know, like many, uh, many things that people eat, it's more like a vehicle for seasoning than anything else. <laughs> That's true, yes. <laughs> but suppose, apparently, um, by the people who ate the body, the body was weird. Uh, and I, I suspect it has to do with, you know, when when you're getting into the the central part of any animal body, you're talking about the organs. I don't know mm-hmm. what is inside um, a spider, but I suspect then you're getting into like, you know, the... The, the heart, the, the gizzard. Yeah, well, exactly. Gizzards, sorry, the, the spider the equivalent. Gizzards, good God. Right, the digestive yeah. Uh, yeah, apparatus. Exactly. Yeah, the spider version of, uh, of organ meat, basically. Right, yeah. Yeah, and suppose, <laughs> apparently that is very unpleasant. So, right, um, yeah. f- fair enough. Uh, you know, and and of course there is there are cultural dimensions to this, right? What yeah. one culture finds interesting might be repulsive to another culture, which you know is another topic we could talk about, which is smelly foods around the world. Right, right. How every culture has its own smelly food. Uh, I mean, <laughs> we don't necessarily have to even get to the the smelly food component. I think like the raw mm-hmm. food component of it yep. um, is is weird enough. So when I was um, in university in the US, I mm-hmm. would kind of, I mean, it's not like you intentionally want to freak people out by telling them about the concept of half-boiled eggs. <laughs> but the fact is like in Singapore, half-boiled eggs are a very common breakfast. Right. Right? And a hard-boiled egg is, if you think about, you know, like a hard-boiled egg, that's when you boil it until the albumin is, you know, gelatinous, pretty much, or like bouncy. It's natured, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Um, And then a raw egg is a raw egg, right? And I think for most people, when they think about like a soft-boiled egg, that's when it's not really, like, it's... It's not watery, right? Your mm-hmm. egg is not watery anymore, but it's still very fluid. Right. Right? So it right. it yeah. has some kind of like a jelly-like texture to it. Half-boiled is a little <laughs> bit more raw than that, right? So it's, it's when your egg white is white, but yes. it is still extremely watery and then this yes. is a, like a very common thing in Singapore like you can walk into you know basically any coffee shop and buy this in the morning yeah. and uh, when I described this to one of my classmates he was like why would you do that? <laughs> why wouldn't you just cook the egg? <laughs> but bear in mind you were in the US in the pre-Bon Appetit YouTube channel world that is true yes which there true. was a very good article in Eater uh, last week I think that came out talking about you know some of the problems of increasing sort of uh, Western awareness of non-Western ingredients. I think I saw that. Um, and it was fairly I, well written. I, I don't know if we are thinking about the same article because I think there was an, there was an article that was headlined something like um, the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen has a race problem or something like that. Oh, no, no. That's not the one I, I okay. was talking about. Hang on. Let me go and pull it up. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, because see. I saw an, an I saw an article um, that was headlined. Well, called that... Alison Roman Bon Appetit oh. and the Global Pantry Problem. Yeah. Okay. I've been seeing those articles going around. I haven't seen that. 
it's 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 fairly well written and it's written by Navneet Alang. Uh, so you right. know, it's, it's it, she, she's I believe ethnically Indian. So right. um, it brings an interesting perspective to you know how um, as channels like Bon Appetit have become more popular amongst Western mm-hmm. audiences, people are starting to become more exposed to ingredients that don't necessarily come from the West. Right. So things like turmeric, saffron, yeah. you know, uh, sambal for that matter, right. uh, pandan, right? And mm-hmm. these are things that are increasingly, you know, people in the West are starting to use, but right. without being completely aware of their cultural context in which they, right. they originate as well. Right. I think the the article that I'm thinking of um, that was headlined, um, the BA Test Kitchen has a, has a race problem. Uh, I mean, I didn't read it in full. I just kind of read the beginning and I kind of was like, okay, I, I don't think I really want to go down this route. But mm-hmm. the argument that they, they made was that because um, people often have different thing have, have different names for things um, in... I mean, naturally, they have different names for things in different languages, right? And so when the BA mm-hmm. Test Kitchen um, does like, you know, quizzes or pro chefs, you know, identify foods kind of thing, right? Or identify like stuff blindfolded, you know, they have those series. Um, and then when when Priya or Sola, right, give the the name that they grew up with, mm-hmm. they are sometimes told that it's wrong. Right. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I think I feel like this has happened more than once, but um, that's a you know that's a that's a different thing, but to me, um, I think it is. It's more along the lines of like you don't expect everybody to get it perfect out of the gate. I think like a little bit of diversification is probably better than none. And to be fair, um, BA is extreme. It's more diverse than most cooking channels I've seen so far. Yeah, pretty much. And I think I mean this is mm. definitely an advantage of being in New York for sure. Mm, right. Um, just yeah. because you you have um, a variety of cuisines easily available to you mm-hmm. and you have a variety of um, ingredients available to you. So it's not just about the cuisines that are represented by restaurants, but just the, the fact that because there are so many different communities in New York, it's a lot easier to get foods from like, um, from, you know, different like Asian supermarkets or like, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know what the, you know, what what they would be called if the community isn't Asian, but um, like for example, my um, professor, one of my professors mentioned that the seven, um, the seven train line is called like is like a mini United Nations. Basically, oh, right. every stop, yeah. yeah, basically every stop has it's an um, ethnic enclave. Yeah, is is an ethnic of some sort. enclave of some kind. Yeah, mm. exactly. Mm. And so you know you can just go down the line and right away you have like a whole bunch of different cuisines but also the availability of the ingredients to cook those cuisines yes um which then comes back to like you know when i was in new york and coming to the question of bugs again that are not bugs (laughs) um my apartment had a cockroach problem every urban city yeah it, it was it was bad and the landlord, uh, not the landlord actually, the, the agent, the landlord was quite benign and didn't actually do much of the management. But the property agent, like, they pretty much just refused to send a pest control person. Um, so, you know, I've, I 
tried all, like, all sorts of ways to deal with the cockroach problem. So, you know, you have those plug-in things that emit a frequency and then they tell you right there on the product page that this will only work for several weeks until they until the cockroaches acclimate to the sound. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was the case. It worked for like three weeks mm-hmm. and then the cockroaches came back. And then naturally when I came back to Singapore, I described the cockroach problem and my mom was like, pandan leaves. <laughs> okay? Put like pandan leaves will, they are like a natural cockroach repellent. And then promptly my mom said, you should like buy a whole bunch of pandan leaves and bring it back to New York. <laughs> to which my response was like, it's fine, I can get pandan leaves in New York, uh, which yeah. I could. I found yeah. them in a, I found them in a Thai supermarket actually. Oh, um, okay. In Chinatown. Yeah, and they were frozen. So mm-hmm. I mean, they kind of have to be because I, I'm, I'm assuming that the volume of people buying pandan leaves is not really enough to justify having them fresh. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so it's like I, you, you know, you leave them around, but it's still a pain because they have a very small area of effect. So you have to put them like everywhere and then you have to change them like every week. You do. Um, oh, but that's yeah. also a very New York thing where you can find a Thai supermarket and, you yes. know, and say a, a Mexican supermarket, specialist yes. ingredient supermarket in Albuquerque, you know, there are yes. two Asian supermarkets and it's like yep. everything and basically the rest of the world in one shop. Pretty much. Yeah. So it's um, sorted by aisle like Manila, Bangkok, uh, <laughs> uh, Hanoi and then you're like okay so I need some Vietnamese ingredients and you know inevitably there is no Malaysia or Singapore oil so it's usually yeah. wedged somewhere between Manila and Hanoi um, because yeah, of I mean, also the overlap in terms of the cultural uh, ingredient use as well so yeah yeah and I mean that's that's a whole other interesting phenomenon of why you don't see um, you don't really see Malaysia and Singapore represented in these types of mm. um, cuisines or you don't see them represented in like these supermarkets right but I think um, the interesting thing is at NYU when we had um, events by the Singapore Student Association right they would cater food but you would not easily find Singapore food um, that you can just like go into a restaurant and buy so what they would do is they would go to um, an Indonesian restaurant and mm-hmm. they would basically buy they would order the items that we have in common with Indonesia. Yep. And of course, on the menu, it will be the Indonesian name. But then yep. when it's displayed out, you know, in the function room, they will put the Singapore <laughs> name on it. Um, well, I mean, you know, there's there's so much overlap yeah. anyway, in yes. part because of the historical, uh, you know, the cultures of the, of the region yep. in antiquity, which yep. we can, is, is another different topic altogether. Yeah, that's that's that is a different the topic. The Rials and the Bugis and the the Sri Vijayas and and so on and so forth. But yeah, yeah, and um, I mean, which kind of brings me to like just one last thing that I have to get out of my system. So <laughs> in Chinatown, I live near the Chinatown Ice Cream Factory, and yes. um, they have I mean, of course, very good ice cream, right, of all kinds. <laughs> and one time I went there. And they had pandan ice cream. So, oh my. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I was like, okay, I, I have to. I have to get the pandan ice cream. So I ordered. I was like, can I get the pandan ice cream? And then the guy looked at me and he said, pandan? Pandan. I, I was like. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, that. <laughs> like, I'm not repeating what you just said. 
<laughs> I mean, okay, to be fair, I got I managed to find frozen pandan leaves in Albuquerque as well. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, because they've been frozen, all the cell structure has been shattered by ice crystals, so it's extremely soft and floppy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yep. you know, I don't. That's fine by me. Um, I mm-hmm. usually use it for blending and and uh, you know, to get pandan juice for color coloring and also just to flavor rice. So, but yeah, interesting. Uh, I I was even able to find frozen patai in uh, Albuquerque, which was right. very surprising to me. Uh, patai is a stinky bean uh, that grows in right, Southeast right, right. Asia. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, okay, pandan. so. This is this is this is like a completely off topic. I mean, we are we are already like way off wherever we started. Too. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when my sister was in Germany, she was in Freiburg, which is not exactly a big city. It's a university town, and it is diverse in its own way. But you don't really see that many um, like Southeast Asian, you know, um, foods there. Um, so there were at least two Asian supermarkets, and. In one of them, uh, actually, I think in both of them, like you can actually get like, you know, the the type of like instant seasoning type things with like you know laksa paste and stuff like that. Mm, so Southeast right. Asia was actually fairly well represented. Um, but what was pretty funny was we would celebrate, I think. Whichever it is, um, Renru, which is 15 days after after um, Lunar New Year, the 15th day of yep. the of the lunar calendar, basically. Yeah. And yep. so traditionally, what you do is you eat uh, tang yuan, which are mm-hmm. these like gelatinous, glutinous rice balls, right? Not gelatinous. In the American context, it's mochi with filling. Yes, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> so we went to the Asian supermarket. And or one of the two Asian supermarkets, and we found the the tang yuan. And mm-hmm. when you look at it, right, it's exported from Singapore. Oh, is that right? It's literally exported <laughs> from Singapore for the German market. And it's like <laughs> that, that. Okay. How does that huh. even happen? Wow! Like it says, wow. product of Singapore, but like the printing is all in German, so. <laughs> oh wow shit I'm okay. so confused by this oh, globalization there we go yeah exactly exactly and then what makes it even more annoying is because again traditionally the tang yuan right it's eaten with peanut coating yes so you have crushed peanuts and then you yes. roll the rice balls around and then you you eat it with the crunchy mm-hmm. peanut coating um, these did not come with the peanuts so you actually right. have to provide your own crushed peanuts which is not that hard to do yeah but I think that's just a factor of the fact that like rather than ship crushed peanuts to Germany like which makes zero sense you can buy roasted peanuts or anywhere right exactly and then just like crush them yourself and I think like that's that's the interesting thing right because it's kind of the assumption of like nobody is just going to walk into an Asian supermarket and and, like be like ah I wonder what these taste like and just eat them Right. The <laughs> assumption I think is that if you buy these, you know what you are doing, mm. and therefore right. you will be like, there are no crushed peanuts. I must go and find some. Which is a topic we can come to at some point. Which is the oh, um, we can just even talk about this now because I don't know much about the economics of running a Asian supermarket in obviously a non Asian country, because mm-hmm. so much of what is being bought depends on who exactly lives in your area. 
So if say, you know, you don't have a strong Malaysian contingent population living in your area, there is really no need for you to carry Malaysian ingredients unless people yep. are going to buy it. Right. So yep. this is the thing that I experienced personally, which is, you know, uh, I'm told Albuquerque has a, has a large Malaysian population, but I've never encountered them before. I don't know where or what they, where they are, <laughs> what industry they work in. Suffice to say, you know, um, the Malaysian shelf isn't that big in the supermarket I go to. Mm-hmm. And I think for almost three months, they were out of Balachan. Wow. Like the, uh, the, the, the shrimp paste blocks, like the solid block, mm-hmm. not, you know, the liquid Balachan chili, but like raw Balachan. Um, and so I wasn't entirely sure if this was because number one, either there's so many Malaysians that they bought them all and wiped out the entire Uh stock, or there is so low, such low demand that they don't see the need to replenish it properly. So I actually asked and they said, oh, you know, uh, we're trying to contact our supplier to get more. And because I asked in about a month's time, the entire shelf was miraculously restocked (laughs) with, with, with Blachan, uh, again, pretty funny. Right, yeah. so so there has to be a certain kind of level of responsiveness to the to 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 the market to a much greater degree than most of the supermarkets, I guess, in the US right. would would have to to be. Because I mean, at that level, you are a very um, you're you're okay, you're a specialist grocer, obviously, but then mm, yeah. you don't behave so much like a grocery as you would behave like a niche shop, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Um. And I think, yeah. I mean, there, there, are, there are lots of kind of little details that are, you know, pretty funny when, when you think about them. So, for example, if I ask you now, satay sauce, what goes oh, into so it? Oh, so much of that. Uh, okay, sugar, peanuts, chili, mm-hmm. oil. Uh, it's mostly mm-hmm. sugar and chili and oil. Right. Sugar, chili, oil, right? And peanuts to some degree. Uh, well, I mean, I guess it's, it's, well, if you want to break it down into more specific terms, it's the rumpa. Mm-hmm. Which you know, unless you're from Southeast Asia, well, you know what it is. Which is a spice blend, yep. and then it's the peanuts and the chili and the oil. So right. the rumpa I mean, is the base, right, of yes. most sauces. Right, it's the spice right. blend that usually incorporates right. chili, some level of galangal, uh, candle yep. nuts, etc., etc. Uh, and then it's the peanuts that give the texture, and then the yeah, the oil that gives it the silkiness. Right. Okay. So. Um, when my sister and I visited the Netherlands, we mm-hmm. were walking around like, you know, um, kind of a, uh, a street market and we came upon a stall that sold fries with, um, the option for satay sauce, <laughs> which naturally we had to try, right? Yes, of course. So we, we bought it and, um, you can see why it's called satay, but it is not what a Southeast Asian would call satay. Well, to be fair, satay is actually a fairly diverse uh, dish in Indonesia. Right. Which I guess would be would have much closer affinity with the, with the Netherlands with as the, well. With the Netherlands, so yeah, I, for sure. Mm. So maybe it's drawing from some very specific variety of satay sauce from Indonesia? It's very possible. It's very possible. Mm. But like the thing that was definitely not present was any spice. So it was just uh, crushed peanut and oil and sugar. Um, I mean, it's like motorway pad thai in the US. or Well, not motorway is a British term, but yeah, motorway pad thai in the US and or the UK, which tastes nothing like actual pad thai. Right, right. And I mean, I think 
so here's here, here's the challenge. Like I, I don't mean to be too harsh on the Dutch version of satay. Um, I think it's really more that if you are thinking about what's easily available, mm. right? Naturally, the spices would be the hardest thing to find. So even mm. if you knew what went into the spices and um, you had the ability to procure them, it may not be worth the cost versus who has the taste to actually want that satay. Right, yeah. Right? <laughs> um, speaking of which, I mean, we also found we also found um, this packaged food, right, in the supermarket in Amsterdam. And it looked like, you know, like basically like potato chips, right? And then on the front, it said, it had these two words that looked vaguely familiar. So, uh, it said satay, but in the Dutch spelling, or actually very common in um, a lot of European languages, S-A-T-E. That's Indonesian right. spelling as well. Right, in, yeah, that, that would make sense, yeah. 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 Correct. So, and, and then... then he has I, an accent up. Yes, correct. So, I saw that, yeah. and I was like, ah, satay. But then the second word, I could not decipher. Uh, except... When I spell it, it will it will sound very obvious. It's K R O E, P O E K. Oh, Karopok. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's. And I wonder Karopo. whether that term is a Dutch borrowing as well. I, I mean, because a lot of Indonesia, Bahasa Indonesia, and Dutch have mm-hmm. shared root words. Yes. I don't know whether or not that's something that's borrowed. Which direction that got borrowed from? Um, I'm pretty sure that Karopok like originates mm-hmm. in, in Bahasa. Although the spelling, I'm not so sure. Um, because I, I don't know how it's spelt in Bahasa right. Indonesia. Um, but the Dutch pronunciation would be two syllables, krupuk. Right. Well, huh, yeah. okay, I'm looking up the etymology on Wikipedia right now. Yeah. Uh, it's onomatopoeic in Indonesian to right. make the, uh, for the crunchy sound. For the and crunchy yeah, sound, yeah. Yeah, so it's probably yeah. been borrowed and, and, yeah. and Dutchified crow pork. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's it's like it's two syllables and it's a U. I say U, but oh, it's a wow. U sound like Krupo. Right. So yeah. um the funny thing is when you think of Kropo, you think of very large prawn crackers. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Well in so, well again again variations across variation, right? Uh, because yeah, in Indonesia Kropok is usually like small bits that are served as a side dish on yes. the, the meal. Correct. So the satay kropok was very, um, they were small, mm-hmm. right? They were very small. Uh, they were they were thin as well. Mm-hmm. And the satay uh, was some kind of curry powder. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It was like a kind of mind-bending experience. Like, I mean, it is interesting though to see how you know these dishes transmogrify, especially yeah. how the colon, how the the colonists transmogrify the dishes of the colonized. Yeah, looking at yeah. you know British curry for that matter, tikka mm, yeah. masala. <laughs> yeah, so it's um, I I mean I I I don't have like very strong like feelings about about these things one way or another. I mean, as far as I'm I'm concerned, right? Because a lot of these, I think can be explained um, not by some kind of malice, which I don't I don't think really is, is relevant I, here. Right, I think right. A lot of thing is a lot of stuff is just 
what is they are running a business. So it's a combination of what can they easily get and mm-hmm. what will their target market accept. Right. 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 So um I mean I that that's definitely one thing that is you know, favors being in a big city because you have a wider just naturally you have a wider variety of um what people will accept and also the availability of ingredients. Right? It's mm-hmm. a, it's just a lot easier to get some types of ingredients um in bigger cities. It's just the way Absolutely. It is. And you know, yeah. in the southwest it, it's we we are lucky because we're close, relatively speaking, to California. Right. Yeah. So a lot of the Asian ingredients that we take, uh, that we, we 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 can buy, come from California because they have a huge Asian market there, and so stuff filters out. Whereas if you're say in Minnesota mm-hmm. or Missouri, well, I guess supply chains are going to be a lot more complicated. Yep, for <laughs> sure. Okay. Anyway, I think. We are probably done. We have, yeah. We I think we I had mean, a good conversation. We've just kind of, <laughs> <laughs> just kind of gone all, all all over the place. So because <laughs> of the recording mishap, I think we probably should do uh, an end clap, just to make sure yes, everything lines yeah. up nicely. Yeah. All right. So one, two, three. Okay. All right. Excellent. Yeah, I think uh, that is all. And um, show notes for this episode can be found at monkeymind.xyz slash. Zero zero seven, and um, we will see you next week. I guess I I never know how to end these things, but yeah. All right. Me neither. Anyway, goodbye. Okay, that is all.